From KCRW, this is Here Be Monsters. I don't remember exactly when I learned about evolution for the first time. It might have been in a classroom, or maybe it was on a visit to the museum. I learned how, long before the dinosaurs, the first life forms evolved in the sea. And how, eventually, over a period of time that's incomprehensible to me, those early creatures moved from the oceans to the land, and some of them evolved into mammals, and then primates, and then, eventually, human beings. It's a simple and incomplete version of evolution. It's now understood that it's not one gradual march of progress. It's more complicated than that. If we could replay the tape of life, rewind history like a VHS and start over, would evolution take the same path? Would humans or something like us emerge once again? Some scientists think we can find at least part of the answers to these questions buried in stone high up in the Canadian Rockies. So what you see here, it's uh, an accumulation of uh, uh, thin layered sediments that have been compacted through the through millions of years. So each of these layers is, uh, is a time slice. Yeah. Yeah, all sorts of tools here. That's right. Crowbars, pry bars, <laughs> big hammers, small hammers. And uh, eventually, when we get to these large slabs here, we'll drill basically uh, vertical holes into uh, the rocks, create a crack through these big slabs. So it's kind of the old fashioned way of uh, doing mining here. Jean Bernard Caron <laughs> is a paleontologist. And every other year, he takes a helicopter full of other paleontologists, students, and volunteers up into the mountains to dig for fossils. It's a site called the Burgess Shale Deposits. The fossils here are abundant and much more detailed than most. So it's kind of exciting. We're just opening the quarry here. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, we don't know exactly where we're going to get, but... There's the most mystery at this point in the day, I guess. Yeah, because uh, we have certainly no idea what we're going to get. <laughs> Jean-Bernard's team is digging in a new part of the Burgess Shale. They're looking for fossils from animals that lived here half a billion years ago, including some of our ancient and tiny ancestors. Half a billion years ago, this mountainside wasn't a mountain. It was a seabed. The Burgess Shale fossils are extremely old. They are about half a billion years uh, in age, uh, way before the first dinosaurs roamed the planet, uh, about 250 million years before that. And during that time, half a billion years ago, the North American continent was under the seas, and we see some of the first evidence of uh, complex life forms that roamed the planet.
For a long time, life was abundant but simple. There were no animals or insects as we know them. Most living things were at the mercy of currents and tides to bring them to sources of food. It was that way for millions and millions of years. But then things started to change. Simple organisms started to form. And then suddenly, at least in geologic time, there was an explosion of complex life. Features like eyes, exoskeletons, limbs, intestines, all start to appear for the first time. Scientists call it the Cambrian explosion. And for scientists who study evolution, the Cambrian explosion causes heated debates about how evolution fundamentally works and whether human intelligence is a foregone conclusion or a fluke. We like to depict evolution as moving upwards from single-celled creatures, predictably towards the eventual appearance of some self-conscious form like human beings, which we desperately wish to believe so that we can see ourselves properly on top of this biological heap. So it seems absurd to think that somehow it was all meant eventually to give rise to us. Here Be Monsters, the podcast about... A fish called Metaspregina. The podcast about... The unknown. One of the apex predators of the Cambrian era was a giant compared to many of the other animals. A shrimp-like creature with a mouth shaped like a camera aperture. Yeah, so it has this really fearsome-looking mouth with a bunch of teeth on the inside, this radial mouth cone. And then further back on the animal's body, on its lateral sides, it has a series of pairs of flaps, uh, which it used presumably for swimming. And then at the rear end of the animal, it actually has... To a modern eye, life in the Cambrian era seems bizarre, even alien-like. So this is an animal that we're calling the spaceship. It has not been described formally yet, so that's the nickname that we know it by. These could be uh, molted remains, uh, or they could be just very decayed bodies where only the most recalcitrant parts of the animal have been preserved. There's nothing like it in any modern arthropods. This experimental period of life's history didn't last. The Cambrian extinction event ended the evolutionary path of most of these so-called oddities. And those that survived continued to evolve. We, we have some of the first evidence of uh, complex life forms, such as, for example, our own group, the vertebrates, which are represented by uh, a fish called Metaspregina. Just a small fish with two eyes up front and no fins. Um, Metaspergina, is that how you say it? Yeah. Metaspergina. What is the significance of that particular fossil? So Metaspergina is an early fish that was relatively small, a few centimeters long, and um, the predecessor of all vertebrates. A very primitive form of vertebrate, but nonetheless, it is a vertebrate. Uh, we're only uh, scratching the surface here in terms of our understanding of early vertebrate evolution. So 
To me, it's, uh, Metaspergina is a time capsule. Early on, when scientists were digging out these fossils, many of them were incorrectly categorized as relatives of animals we know today. In the 1970s, with new microscopes and new techniques, a group of paleontologists started to realize just how many of these specimens didn't fit in any living animal group. They looked at the fossils preserved in the Burgess Shale and asked themselves, what if some of these other creatures, what if they had survived and Metaspergina hadn't? To some, it painted a picture of life on Earth that seemed just a tad more fragile, more rare. We have this powerful attribute of consciousness and we don't know what to do with it, basically. We're just evolved apes that are trying to deal with this powerful mechanism that no species has ever had before. Know a lot of the Stephen Jay Gould was an evolutionary biologist and paleontologist. He paid close attention to the research coming out of the shale in the 1970s and the 1980s. The book he wrote about them made him a big deal in evolutionary biology. He concluded that there was nothing inherently superior about the species that survived the Cambrian decimation. In this 1993 interview, Gould marvels at Opabinia, one of the oddest specimens from the Burgess Shale. It had five eyes, and it had a vacuum cleaner-like nozzle that extended off the front end, bent around underneath to bring food to a central mouth, and it had several gill plates above body segments, which is the exact opposite of the arrangement in arthropods and other phyla. It's one of these early experiments in the history of life that was ultimately unsuccessful. Now, you can take a very conventional view of that and say the ones that lost were destined to fail, but most of the initial experiments died out, and there's no reason to think that they died out because they were in any sense inferior. They may have just been a gigantic worldwide lottery going on. Yes, and you said if you play the tape of history a million times from the beginning of the De Burgess Shale, the early Precambrian explosion, uh, you doubt whether anything like Homo sapiens would develop again. If you do it a million times, a hundred million times, what must I say? Seems unlikely. All intelligence is of the conscious sort is vertebrate on Earth. Most of the reruns of life's tape wouldn't include its existence. If a different set of creatures had survived this decimation pattern of the Burgess Shale, we wouldn't be here. It's just a weird invention that developed in one odd species living on the African savannas a couple million years ago. Sublime and whimsical, as you wrote. It is whimsical. You see, I think what many people miss, there's a common tendency to equate importance with necessity. Intelligence is important and powerful. There's never anything in the history of life that has had such an impact upon the Earth as the evolution of the human mind. But that doesn't mean it was meant to be. It can still be accidental, as I think it was. It was Stephen Jay Gould who first asked, what would happen if we rewound the tape of life and played it back again? And his conclusion was that a lot of this stuff just comes down to chance. But not everyone agreed that it was just dumb luck. When Gould was writing about the weird wonders of the Burgess Shale, he was quoting research. And a lot of that research came from his contemporary and eventual critic, a paleontologist named Simon Conway Morris. 
Simon Conway Morris spent years seeing these specimens firsthand, and his interpretation was different. There are some features that seem to be better solutions than others, like the eye. Simon Conway Morris talks about eyes a lot. ...are highly predictive. I recently have become very interested in the phenomenon known as evolutionary convergence, which is, put simply, simply the fact that you can start from very different starting points and you arrive at a very similar solution. In other words, the common ancestors did not possess a complex structure, say the eye, but the descendants do. And therefore, they must have arrived at the same solution through independent means to come to something which clearly functionally is very, very satisfactory. So at one level, evolutionary convergence is entirely unremarkable. Everybody knows about it. The classic example is you and I looking at each other through a camera eye. Should we have a squid here or an octopus and look to that eye, it, of course, would be very, very similar. But we know that the squid is a mollusk, and we know that the common ancestor of the mollusks and our cells going deep perhaps into the Precambrian, did not possess that sort of eye. But more particularly, I'm interested in the possibility that these are more than anecdotes. In other words, they really are a whole series of structures which repeatedly emerge. The eye is not the only feature that has independently evolved over and over again. Look at a dolphin and a shark. Both have dorsal and side fins. Both have torpedo-shaped bodies. But one is a mammal and the other is a fish. Simon Conway Morris would say that fins and torpedo-shaped bodies are just a fundamentally good way to make something swim well. Conway Morris says that there is an order and predictability to biology, even if we haven't discovered how to read it yet. It's not that Simon Conway Morris thought that Gould had gotten it all wrong, just that chance, or luck, wasn't the biggest thing at play in evolution. He argued that if you replayed the tape of life, sure, the history of life could have unfolded very differently. But he says evidence suggests that human-like intelligence is more likely than not. Perhaps even if Metaspergina had died off, another creature, or set of creatures, would have developed something like a backbone, and eventually crawled out of the ocean and grown opposable thumbs and a big brain. If you're arguing that, in essence, evolution is the search engine, so that it finds the points of stability. And one of the points of stability is the camera eye, but another point of stability happens to be sentience. It's now widely agreed that many animals are conscious. Uh, it's widely agreed that animals have emotions. And in fact, my view of the possibilities of evolution is not the fact that so many things evolve. It's actually the reverse. It's in point of fact that almost nothing evolves. It's not, not the things which do happen. It's almost everything doesn't happen. The actual numbers of possibilities are in a very, very small fraction. So that too, to my way of thinking, suggests there is a structure there in biology and evolution, which uh, I think is being somewhat neglected. The two scientists debated each other through their writings for years. Gould died in 2002, and their direct debate ended. But biologists still ask these questions. It's a profoundly difficult thing to research, since it's impossible to rewind the tape of life and play it again. Perhaps one day we'll find life on another planet a lot like Earth, and we can see if there are any backbones or eyes like ours. In the meantime, scientists are left to puzzle it out on this planet with these fossils. 
Well, that's pretty nice. Wow. Uh, Joe, we should keep this stuff, huh? You see that? Uh, they, they have got the gut and... Yeah, very nice. I think uh, with more fossils, we have a, a clearer picture of what animal life might have been. Uh, new fossils, new techniques and new thinking uh, allow us to uh, revisit the, uh, the interpretations of uh, previous uh, generations. Uh, perhaps uh, both uh, Gould and Connemore's uh, views are actually sort of intertwined. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's something in there. I guess what? Lately, Jean-Bernard and his team have been finding a lot of this one fossil that doesn't yet have a name. They're calling it the spaceship. Ooh, another pair of spaceships. Why do they always hang around in pairs? That's very interesting. When you split the shield and you find a fossil and you look at it, you're the first person and looking at that. And I think that feeling is um, fascinating. It's amazing. And if it's something spectacular that changes the course of science research, then that's great. That's even more fantastic. But even if it's not, the, the fact that you're the very first person setting eye on it in half a billion years, that's just, I find that fascinating and amazing. And I feel very fortunate and very happy that I'm I'm trusted with taking care of them. Dr. Jean-Bernard Caron is the Richard M. Ivey Curator of Invertebrate Paleontology at the Royal Ontario Museum. And you also heard the voices of Joe Moisiak and Mariam Akrami. Joe is a PhD student and Mariam manages the Invertebrate Paleontology Collections at the Royal Ontario Museum. Special thanks also to Alan C. Love of the University of Minnesota for his contribution to our research. In this episode, you heard excerpts from the 1993 documentary series, A Glorious Accident, and excerpts from the Darwin Correspondence Series at Cambridge University. Links to the full versions of both are on our website, hbmpodcast.com. Molly Siegel produced this episode. She's an independent radio producer based in the Canadian Rockies. And she took some gorgeous photos of the Burgess Shale deposits while she was up there. Be sure you check those out on our website as well. I'm Bethany Denton, and I helped edit this episode along with Jeff Emptman. Music by The Black Spot. Now before you go, there's one thing that we wanted to ask you. Last year, around this time, we did a special mailbag episode of the podcast where we gave life updates and answered questions. So we want to hear from you. What are you curious about? What keeps you up at night? What do you want to know about how we make the show? 
call us at 765-374-5263. Again, one more time, that's 765-374-5263. You could also email us a voice memo, hbmpodcast at gmail.com. Here Be Monsters is distributed by KCRW. Our senior editor there is Nick White, and we get additional support for freelance contributions from KCRW's independent producer project. Thanks for listening. More episodes soon.